Welcome to Healthy Outcomes, a Baker Tilly podcast, where we'll informally discuss topics such as financial sustainability, value-based care, cybersecurity, and more. Baker Tilly is a leading advisory tax and assurance firm dedicated to helping healthcare organizations be financially sustainable. Each episode will bring you a topic or guest that will help you win now and anticipate tomorrow. Let's get started. Hi, my name is Mark Ross, and I am the leader of Baker Tilly's Healthcare Provider Practice. Joining me for today's Healthy Outcomes podcast is Larry Carlson. Larry is the president and CEO of United Methodist Communities in New Jersey. Welcome to today's podcast, Larry, and I appreciate you joining me. Hey, Mark, thanks uh, for the invitation. I'm looking forward to uh, our conversation today. Larry recently announced his retirement from United Methodist Communities after a 40 plus year career in senior services, the last 11 of which he was with United Methodist Communities. Today, Larry and I are gonna talk about various topics, including COVID and the impact of COVID and the impact that COVID has had on senior services providers. I mean, what can a healthcare related podcast be without touching on COVID? Advice and counsel. Larry's going to provide some advice and counsel that he would give to current CEOs and future leaders in the industry based on his experience and everything he's learned over the last 40 plus years. Larry and I are going to talk about the importance of relationships, you know, board relationships, board management relationships, the relationships the, the CEO has with, you know, the C-suite a- across an organization and other leaders across the organization. You know, relationships are so critical today to the success of any senior services or any organization, quite frankly, for that matter. And then a few other items specific to United Methodist communities. So we have a lot to talk about, Larry, but before we dive too deeply into our our discussion, or I start grilling you with some, some questions here, can you give our audience a brief overview of United Methodist communities current operating model? Sure. You know, United Methodist Communities has been an organization since 1907. So, you know, been around New Jersey for a long time. We currently operate uh, nine senior living uh, communities across the state and we really cover the uh, entire geography. Uh, Four of our communities are what we call full service. So a CCRC, assisted living, memory support, skilled nursing, assisted living. And then we have five uh, affordable housing projects. And uh, we have a home care company with uh, three locations. Yeah, there you go. So you have a lot going on, Larry. You have a lot There's a lot on. going on. And uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For sure. So so as I mentioned in my in my intro, Larry, you know, it's, it's hard to do any of our podcasts. And we're, you know, we're running this Healthy Outcomes podcast series touching on a wide variety of, of topics. Uh, but COVID generally comes up, regardless of, you know, of the topic we're discussing, COVID generally comes up. And we certainly don't want to belabor it. We we do feel, I think, as an industry, we might be coming out the other side. Think things are starting to rebound j- just a little bit. But can you talk about the impact that COVID has had on United Methodist communities and how you're doing today yeah. as, as you continue to rebound from the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, you know, COVID uh, really has uh, changed the landscape. Uh, you know, we were heading into COVID. We were on track to have our best year financially ever and uh you know because of the uh, covid we ended up having our worst financial year ever so that's you know just heartening but you know i think what we learned along the way is that our staff is so dedicated and committed 
uh, to our residents and families that uh, it really made a big difference in the infection rate with, within our buildings, although obviously we did have some in infection, but I it, it really upped the game and upped our ability to be effective, especially around infection control. Obviously our, our census took a hit. People are, are just trying to decide, you know, do I want to move into a, a place like that where I have to be, you know, wearing a mask and other, other kinds of things. Uh, and, you know, we're still digging out from it, uh, just like everybody else. So uh, from my point of view as a CEO, you know, I, I'm trying to lead the organization forward strategically. And, it, you know, it's been very difficult to do that when the staff is so focused on getting through the next day, uh, especially as this last variant has come through and the staffing crisis. So, you know, it's a balancing act and every CEO needs to, to dis discern, you know, how much can the organization handle at any one time? And obviously my job is to challenge your organization and continue moving it forward, uh, but also balance that with understanding where the staff is at and what they're doing in order to uh, be effective in what they're doing on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, and, and and you touched on a couple a couple things there, Larry, and, and you know, we often tell our, our clients that it's, and, and you and I've had had this discussion too over the last few years that it's very difficult for any organization to be strategic when the the current operation is is in, in chaos, right? It, it, things are chaotic, and and certainly the pandemic created a lot of of yes. chaos. But but you can't forget, even when things are chaotic, you've got to still as as a CEO continue thinking about strategy. You know, strategically moving moving the organization forward, and that is a it's been a very, very difficult balance, I think, for most yes. organizations across the industry to achieve. And then the other item you you, you touched on, Larry, was workforce. So can, can you just talk a little bit more about workforce, you know, the impact that the pandemic has had on your overall staffing uh, situation and, and, you know, some of the things maybe United Methodist Communities is doing to sure. uh, to mitigate, you know, those issues? Yeah, I mean, I, I still sort of scratch my head sometimes saying, where did everybody go? I mean, you know, staffing was always challenging but was never anywhere near the you know the challenge we have now we've monitored the marketplace we're trying to be competitive i mean we've increased some of our front frontline staff salaries by almost 30 percent and it's still you know it doesn't even seem like money is is really the answer so you need so i think you really need to um talk about culture and and try to get people to understand that the kind of environment they would work in if they work at United Methodist Communities. And so we've been trying to promote our culture. We've just announced this week that for the fifth year in a row, uh, we're uh, been certified It's a great place to work. You know, I, th I think that means a lot. And it says a lot for our staff having surveyed these things to say that, you know, they come to work with a purpose. And uh, so I think once people come to work for us, they sort of latch onto that and understand that and can and see that and, and feel like it's sort of palpable when you walk in any of our buildings. Uh, so, so that's sort of on, on the, the the culture side. The other thing we're doing is some more pragmatic tools to try to uh, get staff to to come in and really deploy them where where we have the need. And I, the, the most obvious example I can give you is that our, our building in the outskirts of Philadelphia on the New Jersey side of the Delaware River seems to have a easier time uh, attracting and and recruiting staff. You know, it's more of an urban environment. They're they're on uh, public transportation. Uh, versus our building up in Northwest New Jersey, which is, you know, a, a more of a rural situation. There, you know, there is no public transportation. So what we've done is, you've probably heard the uh, the concept of uh, traveling nurses. 
where, you know, they go and they take an assignment for, uh, you know, a month or two months or six months. So we're doing we're doing the same thing. We're, we're recruiting from um, our Collingswood building area and we're offering people, a, you know, a, obviously an incentive to do this, but, you know, a, a long term commitment. And then we're deploying them up at that building in, in northwest New Jersey. Uh, and, you know, we've had some people who are interested in that. So I, I think that's sort of a, some of the creative things that uh, people in the industry need to consider doing because it's just not like it used to be. You can't just put an ad on the paper and people are going to show up. They, they're just not there. Yeah, no, that's you know, good, good, good comments, Larry. And, and you, you, know, you touched on culture and and again, over the years, the, the dialogue that you and I've had, I, I know how important culture is to to United Methodist communities. And even though Baker Tilly, you know, we're an accounting and consulting firm, you know, different business, obviously, than than what than what you're doing, serving serving residents. We serve we serve clients, but our culture too. I mean, culture is key uh, when it comes to recruiting and, and and retaining a workforce in any industry and, and connectivity. You know, making sure that your team members that you're recruiting, uh, you're employing, you're de deploying, right, are connected. Feel a, a connectivity to, to to the organization. I mean, I know you're striving to achieve that on a daily basis, and and we do that as well. So moving on to our our next topic or next question, Larry, I know, you know, you're, you're proud of the relationship that, that you as the CEO of the organization have with your board and, and your board's changed, you know, in the last 11 years that you've been with the United Methodist communities, you, you, you know, your board has transformed if you, if you will. So when you think about, you know, relationships between CEOs, boards, et cetera, you know, what makes the relationship that you have with your board so effective? What is your your, I guess your secret sauce, because again, I just by observing the relationship that you have, it, it appears to be a very, very solid connection that you have have with your board. Yeah, I, I've been really blessed at United Methodist Communities to have uh, two just uh, wonderful dynamic board chairs. And so that obviously has made it very easy for me to do this. But, you know, there are probably two words and they really shouldn't be secret, but if you want to call it secret sauce, we, we'll do that. But it's really partnership and transparency. You know, when I first got here, we had 45 people on our board and we had a nine person executive committee. And the focus of the board was what I would call a fiduciary board. I mean, they're always looking in the rearview mirror as to what's gone on in the last, you know, three, four months since the last time the board met. And so we would have a board meeting and, you know, we'd have committee reports and what's gone on in the last three or four months, and there was very little forward-looking conversation. And so my board chair at that time was a clergywoman, uh, ac academic. She was the uh, dean of the seminary at Drew University here in, in New Jersey. And she realized that the board really didn't know the business that we were in well enough, to, in her mind, provide governance. And so, uh, you know, to her credit, she said, we, we need to become a, a learning board and we need to move to a more strategic conversation. And so we went through a board self-assessment and we read the book, Governance as Leadership. And we hired a consultant come in and the board spent a day unpacking the results from that self-assessment and the book and mapped out literally a roadmap for themselves just to, you know, where do we wanna go as a board and, and how are we going to get there? And so from that, we ultimately reduced the board to 18, thankfully, and the executive committee went down to five. But probably the biggest change that happened there, Mark, was that 
the executive committee needed to let go of the work of the board and allow the board to do the work of the board. And so that that was sort of a, a culture change. And then we, we moved the board. To, we, you know, we st started with a, we started doing consent agenda. We started opening up more time for more dialogue at the board meeting. And you know, while there's still obviously the board's responsibility to look at all those fiduciary kinds of things, you know, we we, we try to open up time in, in the as I said in, in the board meeting so we could have that forward-thinking conversation. And so we really moved to uh, what I would call a strategic board. And you know, how how we did that was when we were writing our first strategic plan, we had eight learning laboratories, and so there were uh, eight probably hour hour and a half education sessions on various topics that would have affecting the industry and it was really done to try to educate the board let let them understand what's the next generation of seniors looking for in senior living uh what's going on in affordable housing what's the culture how do we define mission and and topics like that and so that sort of led the conversation to so the board started thinking more knowledgeably and more strategically and then since that time, we have moved from what I would call that strategic board to a more generative board. So now the board conversations are around what questions should we be asking ourselves now and discussing so that we can have a strategic conversation and, and lead United Methodist communities you know, on into the future. And I think that was really the, a huge sea change in the culture of the board. And, uh, you know, I would go up to her office at the university and we would sit and we would chat, you know, for an hour and a half about, you know, what's going on at you know, United Methodist communities and really what could be the vision for the future. So it, it really did become a partnership. And I think, you know, the transparency thing, you know, the board just appreciates transparency. I, I used to say, I never want you to hear about something going on in one of our communities at coffee hour at church on Sunday. And so, you know, if, if if I, you know, tip them off that this is going on, if somebody says something at coffee hour at, at church, they can say, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm aware of that. I just never wanted them to feel blindsided. No, a lot of a lot of interesting tidbits of information there, Larry. And I, I, I think as as we work with with our clients and we actually consider ourselves to be a key part of this, right? You, you talked a lot about education, right? Board education, making sure that your board members are positioned to exercise, to effectively exercise their fiduciary responsibility. I mean, this industry, right, everything you have going on is you gave us the overview of the United Methodist community's business model uh, early on in our discussion here. It's a complex business model. I mean, there's there's a lot going on. And for somebody coming in, specifically a board member coming in who hasn't really had experience in, in this business, in this industry, it, it's a big responsibility, right, to, to be a board member. And, I, and I'm not saying board members underestimate that responsibility. I, I just think they need help. Right. right. Board right. members of any organization need help. And I think the management team, CEO specifically, is, is the key person to provide that help, provide that education so they can do their job because your board members want to be good board members. Right, Larry? I mean, they want to be. Absolutely. That, well, you know, they have a passion for what they're doing. They're raising their hands saying that they want to do that. Uh, you, you know, what's the other another thing that's really changed is our board orientation. We used to have an all day meeting and we you know parade the vice president through. And, you know, and it was it was a big commitment, but we've now developed uh, six modules of learning about the industry, about UMC, um, how to read a financial statement, you know, what's a balance sheet, what does ours yep. look like, what you should be. And so those are all now on our e-learning platform. And so our board members can do that in the first, you know, six, seven months that they're on a board at, at their more of that leisure. And then allows us when we do have the 
face to face onboarding, uh, it can be more relational and, and, and uh, you know, mission driven. And we don't have to get into the weeds and those other things because everybody can do that on their own. So that's really worked out well for us. And and here again, that was a partnership between a board subcommittee and the leadership here at UMC to develop those modules so that they would be, you know, meaningful and at a, uh, a level of content that was understandable. Sure. So, so on the, you know, talking a lot about relationships here between CEO and board, right? Let's let's move on to the, the relationships that, that you have, Larry, with, with your team, you know, your direct reports, you know, your, your C-suite, if you will. I mean, I've always felt that any good leader is only as good as the people that that they surround themselves with, right? And and so how important has your team, and I know you take a lot of pride, you know, in the team that you've built there at, at United Methodist Communities, but how important has your team been to you in your, in, in your role as the CEO of the organization? Well, you, you know, you learn early on in your work life that, you know, you can't do it all. And you have to learn how to manage through people and find success in their success. And as I've sort of come through the the industry over the years from being, you know, a, an administrator of a small 39 bed community to now operating UMC with nine communities and over a thousand employees. You're right, it's much more complex. And so I can't do it all. I, I, you have to rely on people. And I have been blessed uh, with an amazing management team here. I mean, I've got vice presidents to a person who are committed, dedicated, um, excited, passionate self-motivated and you know it's sort of like sometimes you have to sort of say you have to pull them back because you know they just want to want to charge forward and then you know beyond my vice presidents it's the the rest of the team on the steering group it makes my job really easy because they are so competent and self-directed sure good stuff larry so so talking about some of the you know i i know united methodist communities over the years has done a lot of unique things relative to clinical programming, social programming for for your residents, but but you're also in the process right now, Larry, of, of developing an innovative memory care model that I believe will be the first of its kind in in the in the U.S. Can can you talk a bit about? And as we know, memory care, there's a lot of memory care development happening across across this country, but you believe you got something innovative happening there. So can you talk a bit about your vision? Yeah. For memory care services and what the future of UMC, you know, what UMC's role will be in bringing about that vision. Yeah, uh, I am really excited about this initiative. You know, we, early on in our first strategic plan, we, we really felt that we we wanted to um, advance our memory care program at UMC, and so you know, we now have memory residents in, in all of our full service. And we are really blessed to have a, a corporate director of, of our branded memory care program. It's called Tapestries, uh, Pam Garofolo, who is just, uh, she's a rock star when it, when it comes to this uh, stuff. And she really has upped our game and moved our memory care paradigm from treating behaviors to treating distresses that could manifest as behaviors. And so, and it's, you know, that sounds fairly simple, but it's really rather unique because we believe that we we want to have a, a culture in our memory care that is normal and authentic. And we believe that if we can find out, if we know our residents well enough, we can understand what might be distressing them. And of course, they can't communicate when they're in distress. So that's why these, some of these behaviors show up. If we can mitigate those distresses, the behaviors don't happen. We've seen it play itself out case after case after case after case. So we, we've really become good 
at, at uh, our memory care. And so we had said to ourselves, you know, where do we go from here? What, what's the next step? And I had visited Amsterdam a number of years ago and stopped at a place in there called De Hoikave in, um, in Amsterdam. And, was, it, and it's a self-contained village uh, where every resident in the village has dementia. And it's a secure environment and there's a, a natural flow of the daily rhythm. Uh, there's, there are only six or seven people living in a house. And it said, uh, you know, I came back, I said, you know, I think we need to investigate this more and, uh, and we should bring it to the United States because no one else is doing that. And, and one of the reasons is financial, you know, in, in, in Amsterdam, there's socialized medicine. And so, uh, you know, they just, they don't have a marketing department, they don't need to. Uh, we're in the U.S., you know, it's going to be other than 10% Medicaid it will be, you know, uh, private pay. And so I think we figured it out, Mark. And uh, so I spent a year uh, scouring New Jersey for an appropriate site. Uh, and, uh, you know, New Jersey has got expensive real estate here, so it was, it was challenging to, to find. I, I needed at least 10 acres, I thought. Finally, I, I came across this fantastic 18-acre uh, farm. And the, the family was uh, retiring and they were going to be moving away. And uh, so we purchased the land. And so now uh, working with our architects, Perkins Eastman, uh, who are phenomenal at forward thinking uh, group, uh, we've developed a, a product that we're, we're calling Avondale. And it's a uh, self-contained memory to village. There are 15 uh, houses of seven residents each. And it's a, a fully functioning community. And uh, there'll be a grocery store, a bistro, or, you know, a multi-purpose. So we have a barn. We're going to have animals. We're going to have uh, goats and chickens, uh, butterfly butterfly gardens. And um, and in the community center, in, there'll be, you know, our, our health club and our beauty shop and our uh, meeting rooms. And so it's really all about normalizing life for people who have a dementia diagnosis. And, you know, it's not normal to live in a group of 25 people. And, you know, and that's who we have in our regular buildings. And most member units are of, of that magnitude. Mm -hmm. So we figured, you know, let's put, let's put it at a scale. Our, our, our model's always been sort of like a one to seven kind of a ratio on our staffing. So let's put seven in each house. Um, it's more of a family scale. Uh, it's so, so there are seven bedroom houses. Uh, everyone's got their own bedroom and bathroom and, and a sort of a, a alcove living area. And then there's a living room, dining room, uh, kitchen, laundry room, den. Uh, in the house and you know people will get up when they want they'll come to the kitchen it's a universal worker model they'll make breakfast they'll say you know who wants to go to the grocery store today to pick up the food we're going to have for lunch and dinner let's 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 stop and see what the goats are up to or let's go over to the butterfly garden if someone needs to go to the beauty shop they're going to put their coat on and go outside you know and it's sort of interesting where you know people said to me oh no you put a need you need to put a roof over the whole thing and if you wanted to look out, outside you know, paint clouds on the ceiling. And I'm like, no, 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 no. It's not normal to do that. It's normal to experience the weather, even in New Jersey. And so, well, what are you gonna do? What's gonna snow? Well, it's normal to experience snow. Now, the risk manager administrator me said, we're gonna have heated sidewalks because I want I don't want to deal with, you know, ice in, mm -hmm. in New Jersey either. But I think the the culture of, of, of Avondale is going to be such that it's authentic. And, and it's a natural rhythm of, of life going there. And then you know, when you when you add in our tapestries program, which by the way has been certified and um, accredited by the Alzheimer's Association, 
I think it's going to be something that people are going to come from far and wide to want to live there. And I think people from the industry are going to come from far and wide to learn how to do it. And because what we've endeavored to do is try to figure out how can this be scalable? And, you know, we're, we haven't just designed something so unique that it can't be replicated else, elsewhere. So I think at the end of the day, I think there's an opportunity for uh, UMC to have a uh, consulting line to, you know, help people understand what we're doing and, and, and what we're learning from it and, you know, pass out the knowledge to the, to the rest of, of the industry. The other part beyond just the residential uh, is uh, we're also uh, building a neurocognitive clinic. And so we're, we're seeking academic affiliations from some of the big universities that are, are around. And so we can plug into some of their research where people can come and do internships there. And also, since the residents at Avondale will be sort of mid to late stage Alzheimer's, we also want to be able to, you know, how do we reach out to the community and provide resources to them as to for a person at home who's taking care of a loved one with a dementia diagnosis. And so we we sort of feel like we're going to have be able to have some immersion experiences where uh, and I think about my sister in law at uh, my brother in law had had dementia. She was sort of at her wits end. She really didn't know what's going on. She didn't know, didn't know how to handle it. If she had had the opportunity to have brought him to Avondale for an immersion experience where our staff could sort of sort of figure out what's going on with the you know what's distressing him and then send her home with a toolkit of strategies so she could be better equipped to care for him at, at home. I think that would have been a, a huge uh, uh, benefit uh, for her and and for him. And so we we want to be able to do that. Uh, and the last the last piece is that. Uh, we're building a, a tech center in the main town center building. And so think of Apple Genius Bar, where you go in and you see all the tech that's available. You can touch it and feel it. So we're going to have this tech center that's going to be a senior living, dementia-related technology that's available to help people um, you know, cope and, and control and engage with their person who has a dementia diagnosis. So that's going to be another part of the Avondale model. And I've written a book, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> no, so very innovative, Larry, and as you, you know, and it is certainly an innovative model, and we look forward to continuing to watch UMC bring it to fruition. So, Larry, we're almost at the end of our, our time here together, and, you know, one of the things that we talked about as we were planning for the, the podcast and having some of our dialogue prior to the actual recording here, your career is taking you to different parts of the, of the country. You started in Massachusetts in the 70s. You moved on to Florida then to Chicago, you landed in New Jersey, and you, you talked about, you know, some of the themes, or, or probably the one most consistent theme uh, that, that you've seen over your entire 40-plus year career, and, that, and that's been the, the, the wonderful, dedicated, passionate people, right, that, that choose to work in senior services a, across the country. So that is probably the most consistent theme, and I, and I will tell you, Larry, as I, as I look back on my career, you know, I, I'm not in the resident care business, as you know, here at Baker Tilly, we, we take care of our, our, our clients, but, but, but that's been the most rewarding part of my career, actually, is the relationships that I've been able to develop, you know, people like you, other CEOs, CFOs, you know, caregivers, you know, that, that, that work uh, taking care of the residents and our clients. Again, you know, it's all about relationships, Larry, uh, you know, in your business, in, in, in our business. And, and I do have to say that I, you know, I'm, Certainly proud of the relationship that you and I developed, that we've developed as a firm with with United Methodist Communities. You know, you are one of those wonderful, dedicated, passionate people who truly care about the the residents that are in your care, that are in in the care of United Methodist 
communities. So in closing, Larry, in, in 30 seconds or less to put some some pressure on you here, as, as you think about advice counsel, there's a lot happening in the industry today. What would probably just one piece of advice you know you would have for current CEOs or future leaders in, in the industry? Yeah, so I would say you need to embrace change. I would say that you can't be afraid of failing and you have to try you have to try new things and then you just fail quick and move on uh, and then you just you know you just have to keep up that innovation and and pushing forward because at the end of the day that's what our residents need and that's how we're going to uh, mature as, as an industry no i like it larry embrace change innovate fail fast right as they say yep yep you know, fail fast fail fast but uh, but but don't be afraid to maybe take take some chances uh, mm -hmm. as you're innovating right i mean right. that that's what you you need to do so so larry I, I can't thank you enough for for joining me today and again as we are planning <laughs> planning for our discussion here i mean larry and i agreed that we we could be talking for hours about about the industry and and there were a lot of other topics that we just didn't have time to get to but but again i i thank you larry for your time and and i want to thank our listeners for, for joining this podcast and if you found this episode useful and would like to listen to more episodes about hot topics in the healthcare industry please subscribe to our Healthy Outcomes podcast or learn more by visiting us at bakertilly.com. Larry, thank you again for, for joining me. Yep, thank you, Mark. I've enjoyed the time. Thank you for listening. To receive notifications when new episodes are available, please subscribe on whichever platform you get your podcasts. For additional resources, check out bakertilly.com.